0: Today's reading comes from 1 Kings, uh, chapter 18, starting at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good evening. Hi, as uh, Dan said, I'm Sam. Uh, some of you might recognize me, some of you might not. I've been here for uh, about 18 months now, I think, um, and uh, I moved up here to study theology. I took a year out of uh, my job as a scientist to come and uh, learn a bit more because um, I really liked having a student card. Actually, being a student really good fun, um, really good discounts, and it's an excuse to stay in bed really late, um, which my wife was thrilled about, and she was even more thrilled when I then told her. After I I go back to university again, so I'm still studying theology, um, but she also sent me back to work, which is really sad. Um, So I work as a scientist in the Department of Radiation Oncology, which is up at the Churchill Hospital. Um, You might have met my wife as she came in. She was a lady with my seven-week-old daughter strapped to the front of her, uh, baby Florence, who is, um, well, I'm sleeping fine. It turns out, the great thing about evolution is it turns off the hearing to dads, so I never hear her cry, but my poor wife is uh, struggling a little more. Um, so Dan's asked me today to come along and speak to you this passage on, uh, on Elijah from Kings. And I'm going to do that to you the way that I've been taught as a theologian. How do theologians read a passage of the Bible, understand it, but more importantly, how do we learn something new about God so that we can change our lives, that we can leave here this evening knowing something new about God and living as Christians in a, in a new way. And so there's two key points that I'm going to take you through which are really important for this. The first is understanding the context of the story. Um, the passage we just read is pretty nonsensical by itself. It's quite a dangerous thing sometimes just to take a bit of the Bible by itself and not understand its context. Um, we just have this guy, Elijah, sat on a mountain praying and getting some other guy to go and look at the sea. It doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. So we're going to have a look at the context. And then the second point is that every story you read in the Bible has to be transformed by Jesus Christ. And that sounds like a, a classic vacuous phrase that theologians have to pull out there. What does it mean to reread read the Bible in light of Jesus? Well, it's actually quite an important thing, so I'll try and explain. We believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but he was killed. Uh, he was brutally executed because essentially got on people's nerves. Um, but we also believe he was resurrected. And when taken together, the death and resurrection of Christ fulfills a covenant or promise of God that he will save us through a perfect sacrifice. He will save his chosen people for eternal life. And even though we've continually failed to glorify him, God will still save us. So if we accept that Jesus Christ as the one who has saved us, for God the Father, then this must transform our relationship with God. And the way that we interact with God is through prayer. So Jesus must um, transform the way that we see Elijah praying. So the way that Elijah does pray is still important to us today. Um, and if we transform that story through the, through the light of Christ, then we can see how this crazy guy on a mountain, looking at the sea, can influence our lives today. So as Dan said, we've been following Elijah for the last few months, a few weeks, sorry. Um, so I'm going to just briefly recap the story. And let, you, know, you might be like me and have missed a few evenings, or this might be the first time you've ever, ever heard of Elijah. So we'll just briefly recap to, the, to where we are. So Elijah was a prophet of God. He spoke of God's judgment over his chosen people, and he performed miracles in front of them. He brought people back from the dead. He spoke God's word. He did amazing things to show the people of Israel that God is the one true God. The other main character in this story is Ahab. He's the current king of Israel, and he introduced the great sky god Baal to the people of Israel. And because of their rebellious nature and the fact that their king had given them this new god the people of Israel had turned away from God of Israel, Yahweh, and turned towards his idol, Baal. And because of this rebellion, Elijah announced that God was going to cause a drought over Israel for three years. And this resulting drought, a very prolonged drought, brought great famine and suffering to the people of Israel. It brought great personal suffering to Elijah himself. But then, at the beginning of chapter 18, God tells Elijah, as he promised, that he is going to end the drought. But before the drought's going to end... Uh, Elijah must confront King Ahab about his worship of Baal. And as Dan said, this confrontation takes place on Mount Carmel. Elijah asks Ahab to collect 450 priests of Baal and a huge crowd to gather on this mountain. And Elijah sets him a challenge. Whose God is going to end this drought? Will it be Baal or Yahweh, the one true God of Israel? Now, Baal is supposedly the expert in weather. That's his thing. So Elijah really is entering the, the heart of this debate about the gods of Israel. And the way the competition worked was there was a sacrificial fire set up and the priests were allowed to pray and whoever priests got the, fire, uh, the, the altar to set on fire, that's whose God would end the drought. And as it happened, the priests of Baal prayed, but their God could not get the fire to start. But when Elijah steps forward and calls upon God to let it to be known that he is the one true God of Israel, God responds with fire. And that is where we catch up with the story today. So in verse 41, immediately after God has responded to Elijah's prayer with fire, Elijah turns to King Ahab and says, listen, the rain's coming. This is before there is even any clouds or change in the weather to indicate the rain is even on his way. But Elijah sends King Ahab, this worshipper of Baal, to go and celebrate the coming of the rain. Because Elijah is trying to demonstrate to Ahab that it is God, that it is Yahweh, the only one true God of Israel, who is the Lord of all, who answers prayers and controls the rain. Meaning alone, God should be glorified. And then what does Elijah do? In verse 42, he falls to his knees in his prayers. Wouldn't you? I mean, he's just got 450 450 priests and a huge great crowd to come and watch him do this thing. And I think this is where we really see a human side of Elijah. We know he was a great prophet and he could speak God's word and he could resurrect people from the dead. But I can't believe that he wasn't just a little bit relieved that that fire started after he prayed. I think that was quite a spectacular answer to his prayer, to to show that God is the one true God of Israel. Elijah really put his faith on the line, and God answered. But, as we read in verse 43, Elijah must continue praying. I mean, Elijah's been through all of that, but God still asks for more prayer. Elijah is confident that the rain's going to come, but he keeps on praying while he waits for this physical sign of rains, a physical sign that God is keeping his promise and demonstrating his power over creation. And this is where we we hear in the story that Elijah sends a servant, most likely a small boy, to keep going out to the sea to look for small clouds forming. And Elijah had to send this kid out seven times. I mean, that's quite a lot. Seven times Elijah prays, God, show your glory and make it rain. I'm not quite sure how confident I would be if after all I had been through that I'd still had to pray seven more times before God really showed me the answer to his prayer. But the rain still came. This shows that God does not always respond instantly to our prayers, no matter how much we know he will keep his promise. But God always does keep his promises. Eventually, the smallest of clouds, the size of a man's fist, begins to form over the sea. And Elijah knows that the rains are definitely coming. So he sends King Ahab back to Jezreel in order to not get trapped on the mountainside by the coming rain. And the great power of God comes over Elijah, and Elijah picks up his robes, and he runs to Jezreel um, faster than Ahab could get there, and we'll pick that story up next week. But this is a context to our passage of the Bible. We have this great prophet Elijah who stood up in front of a great crowd of people to show that his God is the only God, that this God is Lord of all and should be glorified as such. It is the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is ultimate power over the winds and rain. Elijah's prayer is never for himself. It's for the glory of God. Elijah's prayer for God's glory allows him to live faithfully and positively. Elijah never prays for his own glory. He never prays for the power to transform the people of Israel himself. Rather, he continues to pray that God's glory will shine through, and this is what will transform people's lives. And Elijah shows us that sometimes we must be patient for this to happen. God does not always respond instantly, but by being patient and faithful, Elijah can live the uh, the life that God intends. So that's the first part. The second part, how is this story transformed by Jesus Christ? So the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Old Testament, it's the most frustrating book in the world. It's full of people asking God to prove his power. And if you read Kings or Chronicles or Samuel, you'll read that God has responded throughout the history of Israel with prophets and miracles. God even led his people out of exile twice, rescuing them from persecution and suffering. But still, despite all this, the people never quite committed themselves to the lordship of God. And here again with Elijah, God shows again that he is the one true God of Israel, who is the one that must be worshipped. However, as you will find out if you carry on reading Kings, that the people of Israel turn away from him again. And what seems to me to be quite clear is that no matter how much we pray for God to show his power um, in the world so that people may follow him, people may initially be impressed, but quickly forget and return to their old ways. And I really still think this speaks to our society today. I'm sure if you were to ask enough people in this room, there are so many people here who could talk of miracles or incredible things that have happened in their life, tangible life-changing miracles by God. But how quickly do we forget these stories? I know so many people who have stood up here and told me stories of miracles. I can't really remember them. How quick are we to dismiss these stories as religious fantasies? How quick are we to easily dismiss the power of God because we think we know better? So, God himself, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth. God walked amongst us. Jesus continued to perform miraculous acts, such as healing and raising the dead, the famous story of turning water into wine, just like in the story of Elijah. And like in Elijah's story, despite the great showing of power and lordship of himself as the Son of God, people still rejected him. Even the most devout disciples of Jesus claimed not to even know him when they were challenged. When they faced persecution for their belief, they sided with the the people who thought they knew better than God. They thought that God is truly not Lord of all. This is because of all the worries they have of the world. They could not live in the full confidence of the promises of God. But Jesus did, and this is what he did perfectly. Just like Elijah, Jesus prayed in complete confidence in the promise of God that God would bring his justice and righteousness to those who had rejected him. Like Elijah, Jesus confidently lives life knowing that God will judge those in righteousness who fail to recognize the lordship of God. We see this in Jesus' most famous prayer just before he too is led to that sacrificial place on the hill. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus confidently prays in the promise of God. Jesus' prayer is for God's will to be done, for God to show his glory not Jesus's, for God's, and through the power of keeping his promises. Jesus knows, Jesus knows it's God's glory that will transform hearts and minds. Because of his faithfulness to God, Jesus, at the time of his greatest need, just before his agonizing execution, does not worry with great shows of God's power. Jesus does not call upon God to strike down his executioners or pluck him from the cross. Instead, Jesus shows us something revolutionary something that should change our lives and our relationship with God. Whilst Jesus was upon the cross, passersby mocked Jesus, told him to prove that he was God, to take himself down from the cross. But Jesus chose to show God's power, not through an act of strength or of fire or of destruction, as happened with Elijah on the mountain. Jesus chose to show God's power through love. Jesus lived in total confidence of God's glory, that God will show his glory through the keeping of his promises. And this meant that Jesus was free to die. That Jesus was free to love those who hated him. This could be seen as a great act of weakness, giving in to injustice and evil. But it is something much more remarkable than that. Jesus showed that the best way to live and pray was in total confidence that God has everything covered. Even if that meant something as terrible as dying. So how did this change our approach to prayer? How can we have a prayer life like Elijah, where I can pray with such confidence that I can live in a way that I'm so free to love, just like Jesus did? And how can I do this praying all the time? The Bible has these wonderful references that say we should pray continuously. I will, therefore, pray... uh, I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, which is in Timothy, or pray without ceasing, which is in Thessalonians. How should Elijah's story inform us that we too can live in such confidence of the glory of God that we can pray all the time? Well, I was thinking about this and how I can try and explain how I do this practically, which you might find helpful, you might not. But do you find yourself a bit like Elijah, getting so angry and preoccupied with the injustice of the world, annoyed that if everyone just believed in God, the world would be a better place? And it doesn't even have to be a world-changing injustice. I know I'm starting to get a bit old because I'm getting very preoccupied with my waste bins. I look out of my window and I see people putting stuff in my bins. They're my bins. The injustice of it, the outrage. You might be preoccupied by dog poo in the streets or people parking their cars in inappropriate places or wonderfully incompetent politicians. All these things can overtake our minds and overwhelm us. We could pray to God that he strikes all these people down, show them all his great power, and then they would know God is Lord, and maybe they would live a a little bit better, behave better. But what Elijah shows us is this will not transform people. Not ultimately. But we could pray that we believe in God's glory, that God is Lord of all, that he will judge these people when the time is right, that God doesn't miss out on any injustice or evil. And this gives us more time and more space to be more like Jesus. More time to show the power of God, not through anger and crushing power, but through love. A prayer life where we can pray for the glory of God is fulfilling the two great commandments. Love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If I pray continuously that God's glory will shine, then I will truly love God. But I am also free to love my neighbor, even if they do put stuff in my bins. Doesn't that show that God's glory is the way to transform people? We do not have to prove the power of God that has ultimately been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. When people ask us, show us how powerful your God is, we can say that Christ is resurrected from the dead. Now let me love you. When we pray, we must pray with Elijah's confidence that God God has fulfilled his promises just as he did whilst he waited for the promised reigns. God promises equality, righteousness, and justice. When we are confronted directly by others or sit mourning over the daily news, whether local, national, or international, at another injustice or oppression, we cannot head to the nearest hill, build a bonfire, and ask God to set it alight. We must look to the cross. God's ultimate promise has been fulfilled and will be completed when Christ comes again. I'm not here to tell you what you can do to go out into the world to make a difference, I'm telling you how you can pray. We cannot pray to transform other people. That's what Elijah teaches us and what Christ teaches us is that if we live lives of love that show the glory of God, God himself will transform people's hearts. So we must pray confidently. We must live our lives in confidence that whenever we see injustice, we are confident that injustice will not win, but God will. Whenever we see anger and hatred, we are confident that it's God's patience and love will come as promised. We can live and pray with this confidence. Then we are free to love. We're not setting out into the world to change the world for our own sake, but by living in confidence of God's promise, we can live in the hope that God will save us all. Thank you. (laughs) Amen.